Learning Life on the One EO radio station is a podcast focused on all things learning. We'll talk to learning chairs, EO members, and the speakers who come to our chapters. And we want to know what makes a learning program great and what stories make EO members a most unique breed of entrepreneur. Stay tuned. We've got lots in store for you. And now, your host, John Toda. Well, welcome, everyone. We have a special guest with us today, Juliet Funt, the CEO of Whitespace at Work. Juliet, how are you? Hey, hey. Good to have you. So... Uh, for all of you and, and everybody who's listening, our audience is corporate educators, small business owners, heads of training, people who are all interested in professional development, personal development, helping employees um, and coworkers advance themselves in those areas. Um, but first, Julia, tell us a little bit about what White Space at Work is all about and why it's so important to you. Sure. So uh, at White Space at Work, our role is to help high-achieving teams reduce busy work so they can execute better. And when you do tame this crazy low value activity that goes on in all corporations, you create found time that can be then repurposed for strategy and creativity and execution and introspection. And we call that found time white space. So the white space is the strategic pause taken between activities that then allows folks to foster their ability to be thoughtful and strategic and purposeful in the course of their work. Um, and if you've walked into any modern corporation in the last five years, 10 years, you know that white space is in pretty short supply and not exactly, uh, not exactly culturally normative. And so it is our mission to help folks defeat busy work in favor of this thoughtful time and change the culture in a direction where thoughtfulness is as valued and prioritized as exertion. Do you feel that there's certain industries or certain verticals where either the, that availability of white space is more important or certain areas where it's just more at risk and being compromised all the time? Or is it just everyone? It's almost everyone. So we say if you have the hives, we have the Benadryl. So not everybody has the hives and some people have it in different ways. So usually we're industry agnostic because almost every industry is too busy. So finance, pharma, retail, CPG, food, those are really obvious places where almost everybody needs more white space. In government, sometimes they don't have the hives because that relentless, frenetic, take work home kind of environment of a typical corporation does not always play there. And in high tech, they love their hives. And so they, they worship being the work martyr and they love that exhausting, depleting lifestyle and they have no desire whatsoever to change it. There, there are certain players within that space who are starting to understand that it's costly to have smart people do stupid, unnecessary work all day long. So there's a little bit of shifting there. But in general, those are the two places where white space really doesn't play government and high tech. And honestly, for almost every function in every company, it's relevant. Different for different uh, roles. So for a salesperson, their goal of their day is deep, intimate connection and building real relationships with people. So that if they're in administrivia and minutia and conference calls and emails all day long, that takes them off that game. Um, in finance, they have a goal of being thoughtful about the bigger picture of a financial story all the low-value junk and the endless reporting takes them off that game. So sort of each function in each industry has a different uh, goal that they care the most about where busyness is pulling them off of that goal. And that's, that's kind of where we insert the, the strategy for them. And so now when you look at white space and now that we kind of know what it is, uh, I, look, I, I always think about 
today with all the devices and I've got, um, you know, the instant messengers and Slack and email for three different accounts and then phone calls coming in as well. Like, is it a much worse situation now than previous, previous years because of the amount of inputs of communication we have? I think you can't deny that the technology has really accelerated everything, but there's, and I'll talk about more of that in a second, but I think there's a general thirst or hunger for complexity that has really been building for a longer time. So they say corporate complexity has grown 600% since 1955. And even if we move the technology aside for a second, there is a value system around making things more intricate that I think the larger companies become and the more people they have and the more possible their larger and larger goals become, the more this natural increased complexity folds into their environment, kind of against their will or without them really being purposeful about it. So for instance, sitting in email, sitting in meetings for six or seven hours back to back all day long is not a manifestation of technology, but somehow we have acquiesced to a lifestyle where people do so much of that, that they literally have to do their real work between 10 and 11 o'clock every night because there are no work hours where work can be done. So though there are places that increase need for reporting the incredible reliance on decks as a method of communication instead of just conversation. There are pieces there that uh, are incredibly relevant and separate from technology. Then we do move into the fact that with email, with the constant dopamine hits of all this screen-based, adult mindset that we find ourselves in, it is getting harder and harder for our brains to concentrate. And so self-interruption becomes the new category of interruption. It's not Don opening my door four times during the day to bug me. It's the fact that I am working on a report and I can't stay out of jumping to a different browser and then jumping to an email and then checking my texts. And so that level of um, uh, mind-wandering is clearly at play. And I think it's all coming together now in this intensified stew of busyness and overload with, with a couple different factors. You mentioned a, a chart that you saw in our materials that you like called the attack chart. When we studied busyness, it turned out that we actually found 33 unique and individual sources of pressure that each cascade into each other that create this state. And they, they include unusual things like the pressures of the economy and social conformity. And they're really, it's an undervalued complexity in the topic of busyness itself. And it's really, really not an individual problem. And that's one of the things that I am most passionate about getting across to learners is uh, a lot of very hardworking knowledge workers spend every day of their life with this kind of free-floating guilt that if they could just find, I don't know, the right filing system or podcast, um, then they, they would crack this code and they would be relieved. And they, they don't realize how absolutely systemic the busyness and overload is around them and that there's only a portion of it that they have personal control over. And I'm one of those people too that I think, you know, you can always cure, uh, you know, busyness with another system. Yeah. A new, it, I need a new task management system. The old one's not working. And it just, it's another, another way to procrastinate and not do the stuff that you actually have to get done. So now, I think it'd be great. I mean, the David Allen and the journals and the Michael Hyatt, and I mean, that stuff can all be fantastic, but I think it's absent a mindset piece. It's yeah. all about tactical. Um, and we're very much about mindset and philosophy and culture. And when you get those things shifting in the direction of simplicity, then the tactical becomes just easier to, to realize. Where you come from 
it doesn't matter what the device or the tool that's causing the interruptions today or what you know manner it comes in. It's more the philosophy behind it that busyness will take over because all of these organizations become so complex over time that busyness just becomes a, a side effect of that, that, that it has to be treated no matter what. And, and it's not neutral. The, the corporate attitude toward the busyness is not neutral. There's a worship of it. There's a value yeah. system. There's a credentialing based on if you're running by people all day long with a Bluetooth on, there's this impression that you're adding a lot of value. And this is this critical distinction between activity and productivity that we talk so much about in white space. Just because you're moving and you have a giant to-do list doesn't really mean that at the end of the day that something of value has been added to your company. And a lot of our audience are um, entrepreneurs, business owners themselves who very much love the idea of being the busiest person in the room. That's like like a badge of honor. And you know, in the corporate world where it's that if you're not busier than everyone else, then someone's probably going to give you more stuff to do. So the next thing, Julietta, is how do, can you and, and how do you quantify the cost of all those interruptions and, and the busy work and, and the complexity? That's a great question. The quantification piece is the single most fascinating omission in the world of most companies. Because if you look at a manufacturing environment, let's say you worked in a shoelace factory and they discovered that there was a little piece of shoelace lace that got wasted every time they cut a shoelace. They would blow a whistle and lean Six Sigma consultants would descend from every possible area of the ceiling on the Mission Impossible ropes and they would attack it and they would clean it and they would save every penny. And that's how manufacturing deals with waste. What we notice is in the world of thought factories where we're, we're tasked to make thoughts or relationships or ideas or products, um, there's a completely different relationship with quantifying waste. So what we did is we started doing it on our own because we couldn't find any sources that were really interesting to look at. And what we do often is when we're starting with a client, a line of business or an enterprise, we will send out a short talent cost survey just to see what's going on with them. And it really only touches four areas. It doesn't touch, there's probably 20 busyness areas that I could rattle off for you that we don't touch, but we're just looking for a snapshot. And we ask them questions that are very, very simple self-reporting questions about how many CC emails do they get? uh, What percentage of their meeting time would they call unnecessary? And we define unnecessary as you're neither benefiting or contributing from being in the meeting. We asked them a little bit about interruptions and overload-related turnover, which is when they state a turnover intention that has to do with keywords like stress, balance, burnout, workload, et cetera. And what we typically see is we get the data in. It's self-reporting data, so we want to be ultimately conservative. So we cut it in half before we even quantify just to really wave a flag to the absolute ultimate most conservative equation. And we still see about a million dollars of annual waste for every 50 people in a line of business. So that means that you've got 800, 1,000 people, you're looking at 18, $20 million a year in annual waste just from this snapshot. And it's a conversation that's just not being had because we just say work has to be this way. This is my job. I'm going to take the pain. I'm going to suit up and show up and do all the meetings and do all the emails and weather the interruptions. And um, we think now some of the smarter leaders are starting to say, in addition to the many dings in engagement and creativity and productivity that this busyness causes, we're really not interested in paying people to do unnecessary work. And that's uh, a, it's a conversation that we just 
hope keeps going and going because it's such a, uh, it's the most underexplored area we think of this conversation. And, and so how do you work with companies then? I, I, and I've seen your assessment before, so that, that's probably kind of the first step in the process. And then what does your engagement look like when you work with these organizations that, where you're trying to affect a change like this? Sure. So it varies enormously. It's all kind of centered around a skeleton of digital microlearning, which is our core coursework. That's uh, over about, about a year, we teach seven hours of instructional content, and it's dripped out in little teeny tiny sips every week for the course of 10 or 12 months. That becomes the anchor. And then around that, depending on resources and interests, we augment with a lot of other bolt-ons. So for a small company of six people, maybe they just go through digital coursework alone and that's all they do. For a larger enterprise, there may be assessments, diagnostics, small group executive work, keynotes, webinars, customized content. There's a lot of bolt-ons that can kind of come in. But the through line is the digital microlearning, and it's designed to be the kind of learning that busy people can fit into their day. So it's 13 minutes a week, and that's very purposefully designed because people are too busy to become less busy. And so you have to find some sort of entry point that is palatable for them. And that's kind of how the whole product was designed. So I've seen you, I think I've seen it on your website, and I know you talk about this all the time, that you need to, you need to free up the white space in order to learn. And, and like for us, we're in the, the online education space and all of our clients are corporate educators or business owners educating their, their employees. And it's, uh, you know, we almost are helping create the problem where we just keep adding more and more training content and more education. But there's kind of this core issue that if you don't have enough white space in your day or your week to even absorb all that knowledge, what, where's it going? And what's Absolutely. It? And Deloitte's, that common Deloitte uh, infographic that we've all seen says a modern learner has 1% of their time to devote to learning. So we think it's comic when we're in organizations, maybe we're doing an initiative and we are looking at other tandem initiatives that are over there. And learners are asked to devote time to learning, but nobody talks about where would that time come from? They're already working evenings and weekends. So when could they possibly devote time to learning? This is actually another fascination of ours. We're working with a number of HR executives right now, and we're developing a program called Learning Space, which is a 90-minute facilitated session. What we want people to do, and you can take this idea just on your own and do it, is before a new initiative, get all your senior executives in a room and force them to cut the exact amount of time per month that your learning will require. So for us, it's an hour and 32 minutes a month. We put leaders in a room. We say, here's everything you're touching. I need you to eliminate 90 minutes a month. And then we can go to learners and say, good news is we have learning. The better news is we've already freed you the time to devote to this learning. And that's a very strange blind spot that never really gets addressed. They put learning on learners and say, good luck to you putting this in your day. And so what happens is the learning is inserted in the day and all the garbage work makes that evening shift longer, makes the Sunday shift longer, makes the morning earlier because it, it's, there's nowhere for it to go. What are you know, one or two best practices that people can implement like immediately? And obviously we've got, we'll talk a little bit more about your free course because that, that probably expands on some of these. Sure. Uh, but do you, have a, do you have a best practice or two that people can go and, and try out just how they can kind of create some, on a small scale, some more, sure. some more white space? 
Sure. So let me just give a sentence to those corporate learning leaders that you talked about. So probably if you're in a corporation, you're in some sort of simplification work right now of some kind. And your corporation, if it's typical, is defining that as reorg, which means we move butts into different seats, process improvement, which is we touch stuff differently, and usually technology. But the piece that's missing is the human habits. So you can simplify the heck out of all those three things I listed. But until you teach people to think and act differently, to set boundaries differently, to learn how to say no, to learn how to turn off at night, those are human habits that are going to be constantly dragging down your simplification efforts because it's a missing piece in the, in the recipe. It's like no baking soda in the muffin. So what I want to say is that the two practices that I'll talk about a little bit are both in that realm of human habit. And that's really where you want to focus on what's missing in my simplification recipe. Um, So one of the core practices of a white space culture or a white space team, we always suggest that you do culture work of any topic in a team because an intact population can shift culture more effectively than individuals. A core practice is called having a reductive mindset. And this really is the enormous shift from that additive sense of complexity. So if you look around in your job you probably feel like you would get points in corporate heaven for adding more projects, adding more stuff, adding more deliverables, adding more cool ideas or apps or processes. It's always additive. The value system is additive. And so what we want to do is we want to flip a switch that says, what if we learned instead to be reductive and to habitually scan our environment, our to-dos, our agendas for things that we cannot do? Now, in Whitespace, we have four simplification questions that we drive throughout our teachings. And the first one is, is there anything I can let go? And it's a very, very simple question, but it's incredibly nimble. It operates at the individual level, team level, org level. An individual can say, I want to let go of a task. A team could say, we need to let go of a project. An organization could say, we need to let go of a market that we're pursuing right now that's really beyond our capability to add. So this idea of being reductive is a great thing that you can start trying right away tomorrow morning or this afternoon to just scan the horizon of your tasks and to-dos and start asking yourself this one of the simplification questions, is there anything I can let go? So, and do you have another, well, I I know the one that I want you to talk about. Oh yeah, we want to talk about email too. So yeah, so can, yeah, can you talk on, and I just think this is so cool because it's so relatable to everyone. And I just love it. I saw it. And by the way, if you guys haven't seen it, it, you look up Juliet on YouTube and you've got all of these awesome videos on there. And Juliet's like really funny in (laughs) stage. It's like really good stuff. So definitely check that stuff out because it's great. But one of the ones that I came across was about email and and with the real problem with email. Just quickly touch on that because I think it's, I think your perspective on email is is so cool. And I'll just PS that YouTube is getting very crowded with a lot of junk on us. So if you want a curated version of those videos, it's at whitespaceatwork.com. There's a much cleaner video page for you there under the speaking section. Um, So email is fascinating because of our, and we could just talk for so much longer than we have about email. It's a whole day seminar that we could do. But I think the, the critical distinction that we find most interesting is that the typical complaint about email is really about quantity. And we think that the most core problem robbing people of their white space is not quantity. We think that it is that we have all co-created and now we cannot seem to shake the presumption of real-time response. 
So that was, there was a moment where email switched over from the way that was designed, which was to be asynchronous. The whole point of email was I would send a volley to you when it was good for me. And then you would volley back when it was good for you. That was actually the entire point of the design was an asynchronous nature. And then there was this moment where it became conversational and it clicked over to become the same as texting, where I send an email to you and then I wait in my window for you to respond to me. But what that means is if I'm a person with any social skills of any kind, I can't just walk away. I can't just stop checking because we're having a conversation. Then we end up, I'm having 30 of those. And so smart people every day spend every single minute of the day checking their email to see if they need to tap in on any of these conversations. And this is absolutely the most critical and expensive time suck that we see in terms of white space. So we need to move people toward an understanding of what is response time supposed to be based on, not what it's currently based on. You liked, um, we talked a little bit before, there's a, there's a line of demarcation between something being tactically time sensitive and something being emotionally time sensitive, which means either I'm excited and I can't wait to respond, or I'm scared and I can't wait to clarify this, or I'm just stimulated by all the dopamine that's coursing through my system, so I want to respond very quickly. Those are really all emotional. If we step back and we say, when is it tactically urgent, then everything changes. And so we created some codes and we're going to send them to your attendees in the follow-up email. They're called the Whitespace NYR codes. And they're codes that are used in the outbound subject line of your email to indicate the true urgency of the email and not the hallucinated urgency that we all kind of enjoy. NYR in the subject line is need your response. That just means get back to me. There is no time frame there. NYRT needs your response today. That doesn't mean ASAP. It means in the course of the business day. NYRQ, that's the one where you need it quick and you have to be very careful not to cry wolf with that one because you will cry wolf and then in five minutes, everything will be NYRQ because we're trying to all push each other. Um, my personal favorite, because I travel and I work strange hours at NYR NBD or just NBD next business day. So this is for the leader. I, I don't want to send my, I don't want to save as drafts. I don't want to wait till Monday to send something. I'm in China and I need to send stuff at two in the morning. Great. Just throw NBD in the subject line. And that is cueing your team to say, the time that I want you to respond to this is the next business day that I care about you spending your off time to fortify and refuel your mind and body. And I don't want you touching this until Monday morning or tomorrow morning. And so those codes can, can create a little bit of structure and they're wonderful to experiment with as a team, especially a team who's experimenting with checking their email less often. They're going to need to know what's time sensitive and what's not. Internal only, right? Yeah, you can teach them to your intact team. I mean, when we do a white space rollout, it's always an intact population. We don't really love opt-in because you can't change culture through opt-in. So it's either a function, a geography, a line of business, or a team. And even if you're in a small team of 10, 12, 15 people, you can go through coursework, you can change mindsets. And when you get to that section in the course about email and the codes, you can all adopt it together. And it is that uniformity that makes it really possible. Julia, thank you so much for taking the time thank today. Thank you. It was great. I really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to Learning Life on the 1EO radio station, a podcast focused on all things learning. If you're listening to this podcast, we want you to be able to learn about other entrepreneurs and use it to better you and your own business. 
We are 1EO, and the stories and experiences we share are what make this organization special. Take what you can from this episode and share your story with other entrepreneurs. Subscribe on iTunes. Go to the EO New York website and check out the podcast page. Join the EO Facebook group. We are 1EO.